Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, a history of Christian theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. This week on a history of Christian theology, we turn to Ignatius of Antioch, who is also called the Godbearer. You can find a continually updated blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.org. We will continue to update our glossary of terms there, which will help you along as we dive deeper into the now fast-flowing current of truly Christian theology. Please check it out. We should also be updated on Stitcher within this week, so you can also listen to our podcast there uh, and stream them uh, live without having to download them. I'm pleased to say that uh, we're raising the charts, uh, we're climbing the charts on uh, Potomatic, so keep those downloads coming, and please let us know who you are, who's listening, uh, come, to this, come to our blog, um, and, uh, and let us know uh, what you think of our podcast. As enjoyable as the first few episodes have been, turning to Ignatius of Antioch, we move from dipping our toe into the pool to jumping in the deep end. There are many threads of greater conversations that seem to lead back to Ignatius of Antioch. We refer to the early theologians by their name in the city in which they served as bishops or where they were from, hence Ignatius of Antioch. Um, We read seven of Ignatius' letters to various churches, all of them probably written during his forced journey towards Rome with ten leopards, as he calls them, or legionnaires. The writing style and form matches that of Clement and Polycarp, writing letters that are meant to be read to the whole congregation, dealing with issues that they have either faced or will face in coming months and years. Of particular concern to Ignatius seem to be divisions, Judaizing, docetism, ignoring care and love for others, submission to Christian authorities, the Eucharist, and suffering. As far as the question of division, Ignatius reminds the churches to submit to their bishop in order to keep the unity of the congregation. His unique emphasis, vis-a-vis Polycarp and Clement, is the fullness to which he extends the harmony metaphor. In one especially memorable section, each of you should join the chorus that being symphonic in your harmony, take up God's pitch in unison, you may sing in one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father. The church functions as a beautiful choir where each member can sing in their key. All of these concerns fit nicely together from Ignatius of Antioch. Why would one not want to sing in the appropriate key in unison? Well, apparently members of the body taught that Christ only seemed to be uh, alive and to have died. Tom mentioned this before, but here we really see Ignatius take it head-on and use the Greek word dokane in several instances. These teachers distracted uh, from what the bishops, presbyters, deacons, uh, and priests were teaching. Here Ignatius uses especially pertinent words to our study, heterodox and heresy, orthodox being straight thinking and heterodox being other thinking, as in other than what is straight. Heresy coming from the Greek word to choose, as in choosing what is not in keeping with the truth. These dissenters apparently stopped taking the Eucharist, the meal that Jesus ate with his followers before his death, 
and Ignatius looks at the table as an important place for one to receive the medicine that leads to eternal life and also unifies these congregations. These people that ignore the bishops and the true teaching also seem to have ignored the second greatest commandment to love one another. In several instances, Ignatius makes oblique references to what will become central to later discussion of orthodoxy in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Ignatius talks of the blood of God, referring to Jesus' death on the cross. He calls Jesus perfectly human, while also calling him God. The Holy Spirit is mentioned often. The word Trinity has not yet appeared, but will shortly. Ignatius also calls the church Catholic, but here Ignatius just means universal. Um, but this is the first time that this term is applied to the church. It is universal in its scope, applying to all people. Also, Christians, Christian now becomes a technical term to refer to the early followers of Jesus and is contrasted starkly with being Jewish. The emergence of this new, quote, religion from Judaism becoming more complete. Uh, as Christianity has its roots in Judaism, uh, but now is becoming its own way. One unique way that Ignatius discusses the relationship between Jesus and God the Father is that Jesus is the word of the silent father. Ignatius frequently uses silence in this passage in a way that stands out against the other writers of this period. He praises the bishops for their silence and steadfastness amidst controversy and deceit. In my favorite passage that presages the coming mystics and monks of the desert, the one who truly possesses the word of Jesus is able to hear his silence as well. He will, as a result, be perfect, acting through what he says and being understood through what he does not say. Additionally, a clear picture of the structure of the church emerges for Ignatius. It seems that bishops ruled the presbyters who were served by the deacons. Priests are mentioned but once and do not seem to play as a large of a role in this early structure and eventually come to be identified with the presbyters. But the hierarchy is much more clear than before. Finally, the issue of suffering. Ignatius was on his way to being martyred and assumed he would see the wild beasts in the amphitheater under his suffering from Trajan. In his suffering, Ignatius looked to imitate Christ by dying at the hands of the Lord of this world. Contrary to the martyrdom of Polycarp, Ignatius appear appears to desire this sort of death. I mean, you know, sort of picking up with the podcast, picking up here with Ignatius. Um, like, to me, um, reading this, I felt like he was the most eloquent um, uh, of the ones that we've read so far, Polycarp, Clement. Um, you know, he really used a lot of metaphor and, and ran with them pretty far. I quote them in my intro. Um, but not only that, but it, since we have so much more, we got seven letters from him, he's able to um, cover a breadth of topics. And as I said, you can see sort of in nutshell and seed form uh, much of the theology. Uh, when, when people think about Christian theology, you know, questions over Trinity, questions over Jesus' divinity, uh, the Eucharist, the form of the service, these sorts of things. You know, I felt like those were coming out in, in spades here uh, with, with Ignatius. Yeah, I agree. And, and one thing I would kind of throw in uh, just on top of that is it's not just that you see the beginnings of theology in this reading, but you really do get uh, a, a pretty, I don't want to say well-established necessarily, but you get some definition really towards ecclesiology or how the church is run, and what it looks like. And he clearly puts a really heavy emphasis on the Eucharist, on communion. Um, and it would seem he endorses 
some doctrine of the real presence, uh, it would seem to me, as well. Which, I, as I was reading this, I thought, man, if we have any Catholic listeners, they're going to love uh, love what we've come across, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing, in our early podcast, we've often talked about the evangelical, the Protestant evangelical um, I think as the, uh, you know, as the Episcopalian here, I loved the bits uh, about the Eucharist and the unity of the church in the Eucharist. Uh, breaking one bread, he says in the letter to the Ephesians, which is a medicine that brings immortality, an antidote that allows us not to die, but to live at all times in Jesus Christ. Um, of course, yeah, we're not into the full discussions of what the Eucharist means, uh, you know, that we see in the Reformed in the, the Reformation period, um, but you see the, the import of, of this meal, this meal that they share that is a symbol of their unity. Um, and in the Episcopalian service, the, the high point of the service every Sunday is receiving the bread, is breaking the bread as a family uh, at the table. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the cornerstone of, of our service. But, yeah, uh, I, yeah I don't know if that... I, I, was gonna, I don't know what, the, there's not exactly a question there except for, of course, you know, that, that might, uh, for the memorialists out there, for those who think that it's but a memorial, he, he might have a slightly different uh, uh, interpretation of that. Yeah, and we should probably, again, for the sake of our listeners, really stop and just make sure everybody's really clear on this. Coming from an evangelical background, uh, typically evangelicals don't talk about different theories concerning what the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist is. I mean, um, they take it and they use it, I think, mostly just as a tool for remembrance, as something to kind of focus their attention upon uh, the fact of Christ's death and resurrection. But I think they're largely unaware of the traditional debates. And a little bit ago, I used the phrase, the real presence. And, And I say that uh, people who come from a liturgical background will know exactly what I'm talking about, but the the debate that has long raged uh, in 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 the church, especially since the time of the Reformation, is whether or not Jesus is actually present uh, in the elements of communion, whether or not he's actually present in the bread and in the wine. Uh, and there's actually different views on that. Like uh, John Calvin espoused a view that he was actually present, but that he was spiritually present. Um, whereas Martin Luther, and of course the traditional Catholic doctrine, is that Christ is physically present. And so what that means is, is that when you eat the bread, you are literally eating his flesh. And when you drink the cup, you are literally drinking his blood. Uh, and so, you know, that's long been a debate. Uh, being an evangelical, I don't believe in the real presence, uh, kind of coming out of that tradition myself but I did find it interesting that he, uh, Ignatius, seems to, uh, and he doesn't expound the doctrine, but he seems to espouse this idea of a real presence. Um, I'm actually looking for the passage now. I underlined it, but can't quite find it yet. So, yeah, I've, uh, I've I'll come, come back to you. Right, so, so here Trevor, you go. Uh, go ahead, read it, Tom. Uh, I think this is the one I was thinking of. It says, Take ye heed then, this is in chapter 4 of his letter to the Philadelphians, uh, to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup, the unity of his blood, one altar, uh, as there is one bishop, along with the presbytery and the deacons, my fellow servants. That actually was one that I underlined as a passage 
that kind of implied that, but that wasn't the main one that I was thinking of, because that's a little... Oh, here we go. Here it is. It's in chapter 7 of his letter to the Smyrnians. Uh, he's, he's condemning the docetists, who we need, who will come up here in a second, these, this Gnostic group. Uh, he says, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. So the docetists, which are a Gnostic sect, which we addressed last, uh, in the last episode, um, uh, again, this, they're kind of the primary antagonists to Ignatius, it seems. He's really uh, vehemently opposed to them and their teaching, and he's warning uh, his readers uh, against fellowshipping with them and listening to their teaching. And the docetists, as all Gnostics, uh, deny that there's anything good in flesh, and they deny the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so he condemns them here uh, by saying they deny the flesh of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, now, I think that could be interpreted a couple of different ways, but at the same time, it seems like he's endorsing a real physical presence. I might be wrong, but that seems to be what he's doing. Yeah, no, it, it definitely reads that way. And it's definitely, uh, the Eucharist is definitely a big theme, I think, for these letters. Um, I'm trying to... Right. So, well. Yeah, so, I mean, I and I would definitely, uh, I, you know, I like the, uh, I like the emphasis on the Eucharist, as I say, it's, it's an important part of, you know, my practice um, at, at church, um, but also the importance of the table for unity, um, you know, uh, which I think you'd read from the Philadelphians, um, they're unified, and so be able to celebrate just one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, one cup that brings the unity of his blood, and one altar. Uh, It's interesting to think about that unity, that one altar, um, and the one cup, given the fact that, you know, today in, you know, in the contemporary America, in contemporary American scene, um, you know, if you're Roman Catholic, or if you're Protestant, you cannot receive the cup uh, at a Roman Catholic uh, Eucharistic celebration, a celebration of communion. Um, and, you know, and probably in Orthodox circles as well, you cannot receive that one table. Um, so, so what do you make of that as Christian? One of the emphases that, emphases that we see in all of these writers is the import, import of unity, of one body, of one table. Um, what, what, you know, when you guys look at that, um, what does that uh, bring up for you all? Um, I think, well, if, if I recall, um, Ignatius was definitely, was he the first to use the word that we now translate as Catholic? Was he the first to use it, or was he just an early user of it? Or As far as I can tell, well, we first. Well, just so you guys know, we have read everything written by a Christian. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> up to this point. So, yeah. so yeah, he's definitely the first to use it. So, I mean, okay, I, by okay. the way, I, I actually let me let me revise what I said. There were other things written, but that have not survived. So maybe I, it's not quite fair to say he's the first to use it. But in surviving literature, we have read everything written by Christians. Uh, right. As far as so, yeah, he is the first written. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, so him being the first, I, I thought that that was pretty significant. He definitely, you know, we're we're talking now about the uh, the table and 
Chad, you're bringing up the fact that the Eucharist table to him was this unity. But he was also, and we mentioned, like, for a brief second, ecclesiology being one of the themes, and that was another theme that I think was uh, was looming large also because of unity. It's the whole, I, it's kind of to me, the whole thing is about unity with him. He really wants the church to be a universal church, and so a small C Catholic church, and he wants the church to stay together under, uh, you know, the, the unity that they have in, yeah, the one Eucharist, um, and all believing, you know, the same thing about Jesus, which is definitely a defense of his divinity time and time again throughout Ignatius, but also, um, yeah, in his ecclesiology, he he really hammers on the fact that we're supposed to be subject to the uh, to our bishop and to our deacons and our presbyters, and and he really seems to think that the bishops are, you know, they're they're kind of like Christ was to his church, that they're the shepherds, and uh, the the bishops themselves should be united, and that, that we should all uh, be submitting to the bishops. So he's a huge, to me it kind of was just a huge collection of letters just trying to get the Christian church to be united at the time. And maybe it's why he felt the need to write so many churches as well. Yeah, I would um, I would add, you know, just something again for our listeners. Um, there's a lot of confusion, I think, in, amongst your average run-of-the-mill Christians. Um, I can't tell you guys how many times I've come across conversations where talking with people, they'll say, is he Christian or is he Catholic? And when I say something like, well, Catholics and Christians are, well, Catholics are Christians. I mean, it's, it's, it's one big lump. Uh, it's one big religion. Catholics are one type of Christian. Protestants are another type of Christian. And then Lutherans are a type of Protestant. It's just something people don't understand. They literally don't get it they think of the word Catholic as being a completely different kind of thing. So uh, I, I would just like to pause and say um, uh, that the term Catholic has always been used throughout church history um, by Christians to refer to the church. Uh, and the term Catholic means universal. And the reason why Christians use this term universal uh, was because they were trying to point out something about the nature of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God was not meant to be directed towards one people group. It's not just for Greeks or just for Jews or just for Romans. It is universal. It's for everybody, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And early writers like um, uh, uh, Ignatius and guys who we're going to read, they used the term Catholic to distinguish them from the Gnostics, to distinguish them from the heretics, which is a term that Ignatius uh, uses. Um, so that's where the term Catholic comes into play. When the Reformation happens and the Lutherans and the Reformed break away from Catholicism, the Lutherans and the Reformed still refer to themselves as Catholics. They continue to confess in the creed, uh, that is the Apostles' Creed, that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, so the term Catholic, the way we think of it, typically, is refer in reference to the Roman Catholic, 
denomination that acknowledges and recognizes the Pope as the head of the church. Um, and so the second thing I want to address here is, uh, and this is where I think if there was a Catholic listener or a Catholic reader of Ignatius, uh, he would, I think, feel fairly good about what he reads, is that Ignatius uh, very, very strongly endorses the authority of the bishops in the church. He, I mean, he makes some really crazy claims. I mean, he says that outside of, of religious practice with a bishop presiding, you're in sin. A bishop has to be presiding for any religious practices or else it is totally heretical, it is totally unsanctioned. He demands absolute obedience to the bishop. He demands submission to the bishop and to the presbyters. Like, this is something that he really harps on through all of his letters, that the means to that unity is absolute submission to the bishops. Um, and he, he really draws this distinction of there is one Catholic church, nothing outside of it. There is no salvation outside of it. So you, or he doesn't use that phrase, but you can see how the early formulations of kind of Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine that is, really are rooted all the way back here in, in Ignatius's writings. And let me add one last thing before I hand it over to somebody else. Um, uh, you have to keep in mind also as... Uh, as, as we talk about this, that um, Ignatius is writing back, well, he died in 107 AD. So we don't know exactly when he's writing, but probably pretty close to that, 107. This is really early. All tradition says that he knew John the Apostle. Uh, he is the last of the patristics that we will talk about who was acquainted with the Apostles. Um, so you know, again, we talked about the issue of authority before. I don't want to vest him with absolute authority in any sense. I don't think of him as scriptural or that he's always right or anything like that. But we can look at him and say he is conveying something, I think, of uh, the opinions of the early church as started by the apostles. So I find this a very interesting text uh, for those reasons. Yeah, yeah to, and to, what you, to what you said about the bishops, just because I'm looking at it right now, I thought I would read... I think this is, where the heck is this? This is uh, uh, the Epistle to the Magnesians. I'm probably not saying that right. In chapter yeah, 7, right. He, yeah, in chapter 7 he says, As therefore the Lord did nothing without the Father, being united to him, neither by himself nor by the apostles. He says, So neither do anything without the bishop and the presbyters. So yeah, it was a really big focus. And then he goes on within that same chapter just saying, you know, let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope. And just, yeah, it's just all about unity. It's kind of the common theme I, I grabbed out of all of it. But. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, in that same passage, I mean, just, uh, I, I have lots of thoughts on all of this. But one of them is the nature of the word bishop, episcopos, and doulos, slave, that comes up here. But, uh, you know, in the, in the letter to the Ephesians where he talks about the bishops, um, he says, he talks about Onesimus. Um, and Onesimus was actually uh, the slave to Philemon um, in the but letter. Assuming it's the same, assuming it's the same guy. I mean, we right, can assume right. that, I think, but, uh, yeah, but we're not 100% right. certain. That's fair, fair enough. Thanks for pointing. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. If it is the same one. Um, but the way that this is set up, it's interesting. It's almost like, uh, so Ignatius says that the master of the house 
tends to take care of his fair, of, of, of affairs. And he looks at the bishop as the master of the house, um, sort of like a slave master. So, in a, I mean, and, and this is a weird, the uncomfortable um, element that I had with, with Ignatius' appeal to the bishops and then, and then the slaves is he doesn't, he doesn't sort of abolish the, the, the slavery model but sort of applies it almost in the church. The episcopos is like the head of the household, and, and the Christians are all the sort of the slaves um, that o- sort of obey what the bishop says. Um, to me, that was a little uncomfortable, at least with my sort of 21st century eyes um, on some of this language. Um, and, and I'm sure Tom will have a, a rebuttal to that. But I just at first, at first glance, you know, that was a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I, I don't know that I'd say... I don't know that I'd say I have a rebuttal per se, but what I would say is, I mean, we can reference what we talked about in the last episode uh, when we talked about how the call to submission and service in the church isn't meant to be uh, what people, I think, um, in this postmodern culture think of it as. It's not a call to oppression. Um, Christians have always thought of submission as freedom. Uh, Christ mm. being God submitted himself to the ultimate degree in every way. He submitted himself to his parents, to every, govern, uh, to every governor, to the Roman Empire itself, to, uh, to the laws of the land, to Pontius Pilate, and ultimately he submitted himself to the rule of death. Um, and all of that was, what, it was the tool by which humankind was freed. So I'm with you. I understand why the metaphor is uncomfortable, uh, especially being a 21st century human being who despises slavery and things of that nature. I mean, I agree with that entirely. So it would be an uncomfortable analogy, but it was a ready-made analogy, I think, uh, in the early church. And it was easy at hand for him to kind of say, look, it is a good thing for us to submit to bishops. I don't think uh, that he had in mind that that submission, as strong as his language is, I can't think that he really did think uh, that, Uh, submission was always in every possible instance warranted i think he just thought that submission was was this great virtue which would lead to unity within the church so it's not really a rebuttal per se i feel uncomfortable in the same way but i think that that's the way he would have looked at it by by the way um this is a bit tangential um but has to do with our talking about the submission did anyone look at chapter 2 of his epistle to the I think it's the Trallians mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he says something here and I wanted to know so this is just me not knowing things wanting to know something again he says it's it's therefore necessary uh, that the, what is it, where is it oh yeah okay so here it is so it's so without the bishop you should do nothing he says that you should also be subject to the presbytery as to the apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is the apostle of Jesus Christ? Like what's... Uh, I, I thought that so was it's in the reason. singular? Is that what you said? It's in the singular? The apostle? Yeah, yeah well, the apostle. Yeah, that must be a misprint. I mean, uh, the Greek has them as plural. Apostle. Oh, okay. This might be a misprint. I am on the New Advent, which is the Catholic Encyclopedia. So hmm. I'm calling them out. Yeah, it's 
It should be plural. <laughs> it is plural. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that... Oh, see, there you go. Clean something up. You know, you mentioning the submission to the presbytery reminds me of one more thing that popped off the page to me in this reading, and that is, here is the first time where there's a clear distinction of three distinct offices in the church. He mentioned right. the bishop, the bishop, which in the Greek is episkopos, which can, is usually translated bishop, but literally means overseer, one who, who is, you know, has oversight over something. He references the presbyters, again, Greek word presbyteros, which means elders, and then the deacons, the third, uh, the third of the uh, group. And he makes a clear distinction that each one of these is submissive to the previous. So the bishop is the authority. The presbyters are under the bishop's authority, and the deacons are under the presbyter's authority. Um, so there's a clear hierarchy. When, when I read the New Testament and Polycarp and Clement, when I read these earlier writings, the references to the bishop, the episcopoi, that is, or the presbyteroi, the, the presbyters, it, it's not really clear that they had in mind something different. It's not clear that the bishop was a distinct office. But here, very clearly, we have that distinction. A bishop who has uh, complete oversight over his uh, church or region or whatever, it's not really clear how far his authority extended at that point, but it seems to be really clear that that distinction is held here. Yeah, and this is something of a personal pet peeve of mine, but oftentimes people will use the adjective, or excuse me, the adverb, like, I'm just being biblical. Um, or, you know, something about, well, biblically speaking, um, you know, church should be set up like this, or you should do this. You know, it's interesting, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess, well, I guess, you know, now I'm, I'm referring to Ignatius, so maybe I should back off of the biblical a little bit. Um, but, you know, we, we're not 100% sure how the churches were set up in, when Paul's writing, but at least as far as Ignatius is concerned, I mean, trying to look back at the early church for how you organize your structure, um, I'm aware of no church uh, that organizes their structure this way, that has, um, you know, episkopos and then, you know, has, an, a, has a bishop and then has a presbytery and has deacons. I'm aware of um, some combination of those, but never all three in one structure that looks anything like what Ignatius describes. Couldn't, uh, couldn't somebody who, uh, a church that holds to a traditional Episcopal form of government, that is, with a bishop, uh, with a priest or a presbyter or, you know, something along those lines, and a deacon say that they ascribe to the, the lines drawn in Ignatius? Well, it, that, see, that's the thing that I'm not 100% clear on with him. He also mentions priests. And I'm not actually, there's one point where he mentions the priest as another name. And so I'm not exactly sure how priests fit in here. Um, it seems that there is, you know, that there is, like, I mean, as far as, like, the Episcopalian Gotcha. Church, they, you mean the fact that they don't use the term presbyter. They use the term priest rather than presbyter, typically. Yeah, it's, it, yeah and I, gotcha. I was trying to, well, part of me was trying to also figure out that, um, that distinction is a priest just a presbyter. Um, I've honestly always assumed that that was their intention, but I'm not. I, I don't come from a liturgical background, so I really am not one, uh, you know, who can really speak to that. That's what I've assumed, but I thought. Yeah. That as well. well, 
and, and so, yeah, so if that's the case, I mean, that is how the Episcopal Church is set up. We have a bishop, then the priest is above, is below, uh, you know, is below the bishop but above the deacon um, as far as the hierarchy is concerned. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we don't use the word presbyter or elder, uh, which are both terms that are used uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church, um, but but nowhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, just trying to use language that's directly used by you know early the early church. Um, we don't see some of that. Uh, it fits exactly as Ignatius uses it. Yeah, fair enough. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the truth is, is even with Ignatius obviously giving a lot more detail, he still doesn't tell us enough. I think to really establish. Um, you know, what form of church government uh, was being used back then. Uh, by the way, I should, maybe again for point of clarification for our listeners, uh, just so you guys know, there are considered traditionally to be three different models of church government. Uh, when I say church government, I mean who like authority structure within the church. Um, one of those is Episcopalian. Uh, not to be confused with the Episcopal denomination, but it's the Episcopalian form of church government. And the way the Episcopalian form of church government functions is you have a priest or a pastor or a rector or whatever term you use who's in charge of a, of a parish church or a specific church. He is under the authority of a bishop who has uh, broader authority over a... Uh, you know, a group of priests or rectors. And then the bishop is under uh, some higher-ranking bishop. Uh, and, of course, usually an Episcopal form of government terminates in some kind of main authority over the church. In the Roman Catholic Church, that main authority is the Pope in Rome. Uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the main authority, surprisingly, is actually the emperor of Rome, who uh, there is no emperor of Rome anymore, so it's actually a, uh, an empty seat at this point. But the Roman emperor was, is the, the terminus of that authority. Kind of in his place is the patriarch of Constantinople. And in the Church of England, the terminus of that authority is uh, the queen or uh, the monarch of England, uh, whoever that might be at the time. Uh, and then the other two forms of church government uh, that have predominated are the Presbyterian form, uh, and a Presbyterian form uh, is when the church is ran by a group of elders. Uh, so decisions are not made by one person, but rather by a group of people who are appointed to that position. And then the third form is congregational. And a congregational church, uh, decisions are actually made by popular vote of the church members. So it's actually uh, kind of a democratic form of church government. There are all sorts of different kind of uh, mixes of these different kinds. Uh, one that very much predominates is a church which has kind of a <clears throat> senior pastor who is more or less uh, kind of a final authority within the church. And that is really a kind of form of an Episcopal government, um, but it's a little different. So you have kind of mixing and matching of these three, but those three are the main ones. So if you hear us talk about Episcopal government, congregational government, or Presbyterian government, that's what we're referring to. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one thing that I wanted to, um, you know, sort of question or uh, continuum um, that I noticed within this writing with Ignatius is, you know, as I said, he, he actually, he uses all these words uh, that, that sometimes get misused or abused or used to be hurtful to people. 
but that are very much a part of Ignatius' vocabulary, which are orthodox, heterodox, and heresy. Um, you know, so he is very concerned with orthodoxy, you know, correct teaching, heterodoxy, uh, other teaching that's not orthodox, and, and heresy, which is sort of going one's own way. Um, but the only thing that he seems to be concerned with as heresy is not believing that Jesus actually was human, which he makes very clear, and was also God and resurrected. So I, I find it fascinating because, you know, I think with the Dan Brown kind of um, mentality or some of the more recent, um, I mean, sometimes even in academia, Bart Ehrman, other people like that, they look back on this and they try to tell a picture or tell a story where, you know, in the Council of Nicaea in the 4th or 5th centuries, all these people got some power and then lorded it over um, anybody who disagreed with them to where they wanted to, you know, to kill them or keep them ostracized. And, you know, we're only getting part of the story. Um, and so, but we see, you know, in, in the 1st century or the beginning of the 2nd century, you know, someone who's willing to die um, for his belief that Jesus was both God and man, even though not articulated like it would be in Chalcedon, um, but he was very much, you know, believing in what comes to be very similar to Orthodox teaching. Um, and so there's this hard, there's this hard thing that, that we have here where, you know, he, he wants to be sure that there's right teaching, um, but, but what is right teaching is, you know, is just one, basically one thing. Like, let's get who Jesus is right. Yeah, you know, actually, you talked earlier about having a, uh, a pet peeve, and I have a pet peeve with this. If there's one thing that really uh, gets under my skin, it's when people kind of following in the, the Dan Brown tradition, which, ladies and gentlemen, if you've read a Dan Brown book, please understand this. That man knows nothing about ancient history. I mean, I'm sorry to say, the guy doesn't know anything. And, and really, you all need to be very suspect if you ever hear anybody say something, tell you this narrative. Well, you know, Jesus was this really good moral teacher. He died, and his disciples taught his morals, and then along came Constantine, and he ruined everything. Um, and Constantine, of course, the one who created the doctrine of the Trinity and who gave us the Bible and all this. Guys, I, I promise you, there is nothing that happened under the reign of Constantine that didn't have its roots uh, in the, the 200 years or 300 years that preceded it. Okay, so let me read a little section just kind of uh, playing off of what you just said, Chad. Uh, here in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 7, uh, Ignatius says, there is one physician, and he's speaking of Jesus, by the way, who is possessed both of flesh and spirit. Now, this is, as we've said already, kind of a big point of his. He's arguing against the docetists, who are Gnostics, who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, who insist that everything that is good must be spirit. So he's saying, listen, Jesus came in the flesh. So it says both flesh and spirit, and I'm going to continue his reading, both made and not made. So the made part is his physical body. The not made part is his godhood. And then he says this, God existing in the flesh, true life in death, both of Mary and of God, first possible and then impossible, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So, even, so, so the thing I want to point out here is, he here, uh, his, actually from here you can get some major Christian doctrines uh, that uh, are not codified or 
officially sanctioned until two and even 300 years later. Uh, and one is uh, what Chad just made a reference to, the Council of Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon, which uh, I don't know when you guys can look it up. I, the date escapes me. 451. Uh, 451. The Council of Chalcedon uh, establishes as a formal doctrine within the church the nature of the union between God and man in Jesus Christ. Um, but all of the Council of Chalcedon is, I mean, it's, it's, it completely traces back to passages like this one in Ignatius way back in 106 or so, whenever he was writing this. Uh, here he says he is God and man. He is born and not born. He is of God and of Mary. And there you have another doctrine that is kind of, it's, it's a, a long-standing one in the church, the doctrine of the Theotokos, um, which uh, is confirmed at the Council of Ephesus. Again, uh, the year. Do you know the year, uh, Chad, for Council oh, of Ephesus? I, uh, I know. Anyway. Other, yeah. No. Yeah, I'll, look, I'll get, it, get it to you guys later, but... Basically, the doctrine of the Theotokos, which means God-bearer or, you know, carrier, that is, carrier in the womb, um, and that's Mary. The idea in that doctrine is Mary truly gave birth to God himself, God who was both man and uh, God. Um, that it wasn't that uh, a spirit came upon her son or anything like that, but even while in the womb, he was still God. Okay, so, so these doctrines go, I mean, are clearly espoused. By Ignatius, and they're not things he takes lightly. They're things that he deems to be so important um, that that if you don't adhere to them, uh, he, he actually pronounces pretty harsh judgments upon you. You are not to be in fellowship uh, with such a person. Such a person is to be cut off from the altar. He's not to have any part in the community of Christ. Um, and in one part, he even mentions the resignation to eternal fire, so hellfire. There's actually a reference. Uh, once uh, to such things. So this is something of grave importance uh, to Ignatius. Yeah. He, uh, one, of the, one of the verses that I thought was kind of a, a uh, forerunner for the creeds as well was just in the way that it would influence how they thought about Jesus' divinity was in chapter 18 of uh, his epistle to the Ephesians, he says, for our God, Christ, was, according to the appointment of God, conceived in the womb by Mary. And so there's a bit more uh, doctrine of St. Tokos there, but I thought that that was, that was very interesting, that he even uses, you know, God twice in that sentence to refer to God in Jesus Christ and I'm assuming then God the Father in the second uh, use of God. So I thought that was yeah, really yeah. So I I agree uh, totally, and you know, and like I said, and I think um, as we one of the reasons that I wanted to be a part of this project um, is you know as you read each individual author and read them closely, you know, uh, there's a picture that emerges of what this church thought and taught that might be different from some sort of narratives that are out there, which Tom um, was, was mentioning. Um, one of their interesting little um, things that emerges here, and uh, now I'm going to, it's going to take me a minute to find it, but um, 
uh, well, actually, so, you know, he starts talking about what is fitting to be called, that it's fitting to be called Christians, at least in the letter to Magnesian. Um, but he makes a, a clear distinction between Judaism. So here, uh, the Magnesians, uh, the Epistle of the Magnesians, chapter 10. Um, uh, let's see, it is outlandish to proclaim Jesus Christ and practice Judaism. For Christianity did not believe in Judaism, but Judaism and Christianity, uh, in which every tongue that believes in God has been gathered together. Uh, this is part of that universal vision that Ignatius has for the church. But we see a very clear distinction by this point, which, you know, at the very latest uh, is the early 2nd century, but, but late 1st century, early 2nd century, where the, um, the Christianity begins to separate itself from its Jewish roots. Of course, Jesus was Jewish, and his early, many of his early followers were also Jewish, um, but now we, we sort of have this, uh, this, there's a dichotomy. There are Jewish people, and there are Christian people. And, and Ignatius is coming from Antioch, which as far as we can tell from Acts, is the first place Christian, the little Christian, um, was used as a term of uh, derision to make fun of the Christians, their little Christ. Uh, but here he takes it on as a label uh, that he wants to own. He says, whoever is called by this uh, any other name, it does not belong to God. We must live to a, uh, learn to live according to Christianity as little Christ. Do what Christ did. And so, I mean, it, you know, there are lots of questions I could think of here, but, you know, does he have a concept of religion? Um, you know, and, and what does the word religion mean? But at the very least, we see um, sort of there, there are two groups. There are Jewish people, and now there are these Christian people and really, you know, other than the fact that Christianity emerges from Judaism, uh, the two should not really be related anymore. Yeah, that, that was something I picked up on, especially in the theme of keeping to the Lord's Day rather than the Sabbath. And I can't remember exactly where I read that reading it I actually, several times. I actually, I actually have a passage from that. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll read it. Um, I found that a kind of a, a very interesting one personally, because uh, I actually grew up Seventh-day Adventist, um, which, for those of you who don't know, uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe that the day you have to celebrate uh, the Sabbath, according to the Ten Commandments, is on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, which is the same day that Jews celebrate the Sabbath. And um, it, it always made sense to me. I mean, according to the Ten Commandments, there is particularly this one to celebrate on the seventh day, which is Saturday, uh, so I, I never understood why Christians celebrated on Sunday. Um, and again, early on, I just had this opinion against them because I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, by the way, kind of one more thing to kind of feed into my pet peeve, the knock that, that people who worship on the, on the seventh day, on Saturday, like the Seventh-day Adventist, usually bring against the church is that, that Christians didn't start to worship on Sunday until Constantine uh, introduced <laughs> Sunday worship because uh, of the fact that his father worshipped Sol, the sun god, and his day was Sunday, the first day of the week. Well, again, that is patently not true. Uh, here we have it from the first century, from Ignatius, or early second century. He says this, If therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day. This fits right into his teachings against Judaism. He's saying, we don't worship on the Sabbath that the Jews worship on. We don't 
worship on the seventh day of the week. We worship on the Lord's day. We worship on Sunday, this new day which is our day. So the, the main thing I want to drive home here is that that practice goes all the way back to the early second century and clearly into the first century because uh, he wouldn't have just devised it at this moment. Christians were clearly worshiping on Sunday. Now, we don't know exactly why that switch happened. It's never explicated for us. But there are allusions to it uh, in the writings. Uh, the, the church fathers speak of Sunday as like, instead of thinking of it as the first day, thinking of it as the eighth day, the day of new beginnings. They think of it as a day of resurrection. Most importantly, it's the day that Jesus was in fact resurrected. So in honor of his resurrection, they celebrate on that day. The only thing I had thought really about adding a discussion on um, was his exuberance to die, um, which I thought was a little odd. Um, I mean, you know, he was really, really excited to be able to join Peter and Paul amongst the martyrs. And he had this sense almost of, I gathered by reading what he wrote that he had almost had this sense that he didn't know he was a good enough Christian until he uh, faced death. That was like going to be the thing that showed him that he was in fact uh, good enough. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I found it kind of a little, um, I don't know, distra- distressing, disturbing. Uh, I, I didn't no. think that that set of a martyr. Uh, it was definitely weird, and I thought it was really weird, especially like that really famous passage of him being ground by his flesh being ground up by the lion's teeth as what it, what is it like the bread like the true bread of Christ or something? I, it was really strange. Like he was really like comparing his flesh to like an element of the Eucharist. That's, found that part a, a little uncomfortable, although it is curious when he kept talking about um, imitating Christ, um, you know, the, I, I kept thinking of the popular wristbands when I was a kid, the WWJD bracelets, um, yeah. and for Ignatius, it seems, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, he would suffer and he would die, um, and so that's what I must do, um, yeah. and, so, and so it seems to him, uh, like, you know, this first like at least from Ignatius, the sense that we get imitating Christ, being like God, um, acting like Jesus, means suffering and dying. Um, and that's what he's looking out for. Um, and, and so that's sort of a different, you know, when I was taught what would Jesus do, it was a way to, you know, think about loving your neighbor, and it was a way to uh, be kind and, you know, some of these sorts of things. I never thought to myself, I better climb up on a cross and die for somebody's sins. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> by the yeah. way, um, I, I thought I'd just add a little bit by way of some even further historical context uh, that I think kind of I don't know how much maybe I'm kind of reading this into it. I'm maybe seeing it through this lens, but I feel that this almost adds some of the. I don't know, just kind of adds to this narrative of Ignatius being so desirous of a martyr's death. And and that is, by all accounts, he was put to death by Trajan, the Roman emperor. And for those of you guys who don't know who Trajan is, Trajan is not considered one of the bad Roman emperors who ruthlessly killed Christians. Um, Prior 
to Ignatius's life, you had two serious persecutions, one in Rome under the Emperor Nero and one in Turkey under the Roman Emperor Domitian. Um, Trajan is reigning by this point, and Rome is for the most part at peace. And Trajan, in general, not just in general, he's considered a very great world ruler. Uh, he's considered probably the best Roman emperor who ever lived. Um, and I, of course, have an affection for Trajan. There's no question he did endorse putting Christians to death, but I get the sense of, uh, well, I'll just read this little section. He, he wrote a letter, or uh, there was a, a series of correspondence between him and a governor. Uh, the governor's name was Pliny, and Pliny wrote to him specifically on uh, Christians and the fact that Christians are a nuisance to the well-being of the republic, uh, uh, mostly because they won't worship the proper gods and they're causing division within the empire. So in that, in that conversation, Trajan writes this. He says to Pliny, You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the case of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, he shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in the prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So I find Trajan's comments very interesting. On the one hand, you see in them this good nature as a ruler. Namely, he will not tolerate anonymous accusations because he is not going to put up with this kind of uh, you know, blame shit, you know, blaming game that's going on and people trying to get, you know, trying to get people in trouble. They will only, uh, Christians will only be arrested if they have been demonstrated to be a Christian and if witnesses are present. And, and I, I found this interesting, he says, you would not search out any Christians. He goes, we're not going to seek them to put them to death. Um, so on the one hand, you see this kind of very positive thing about him. On the other hand, he's killing Christians. And the early church, no doubt, was very vocal, and they didn't hide their faith. And they would go out and preach the gospel and share, as they should. That was their call. And so, no doubt, uh, Ignatius as a leader in the church, was a preacher and went out and shared the gospel with people, made people very aware of who he was. And it was under uh, Trajan's particular brand of persecution that Ignatius was put to death. So, Yes, we have this important um, you know, uh, re rationale for the reason that Christians worship on Sunday. Um, all of these things are, you know, to me, reasons why reading this early literature is fascinating, um, you know, because I, I used to say that uh, when I was growing up uh, that uh, I felt like church history was effectively um, Jesus, uh, Paul, then Billy Graham and my pastor, and nothing in between. <laughs> uh, um, and, and basically, you know, that was how I understood, you know, I was like, oh, well, basically Billy Graham and my pastor, they read the Bible and they made churches, and that's how we know what to think and what to do. Nothing else happened in between, um, or nothing that was of importance. Uh, but you can see, you know, by reading these guys, um, a lot of the early forms of these doctrines, which complicate um, other narratives uh, that, that 
you know, basically try to delegitimize Christianity and say it's just these people with power oppressing um, other, you know, marginalized groups. Uh, I mean, the Christians here who are talking about orthodoxy and heresy are the marginalized group. You know, the whole time here, Ignatius is the one walking to his own death, trying to prepare himself to being shred to pieces by wild beasts because he knows that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, the gospel. Um, He knows that this is the case and that Jesus Christ was both, you know, a a form of God uh, in man and that, that he would be, you know, that he was raised bodily and we too would be raised bodily. And, the, you know, as Tom was saying, the import of the physical here against the Gnostics, um, you know, descending from Plato who believe that, well, really the body is sort of something that we have to get rid of and look past. But what's most important uh, is the soul stuff, um, uh, you know, the this, this stuff that goes beyond the, the flesh. Yeah. That sounded like a pretty good peroratio, if you will. thank you for listening to a history of christian theology next week we'll be looking at the didache which means the teachings in greek as well as the epistle of barnabas who may have been a traveling companion with paul please check out our blog uh, at a history of christian theology.com And please share this podcast with those around you. We'd love to increase the conversation that is going on around these great early church thinkers.